Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we talk about the protests that roiled the nation in wake of Trump's Muslim ban, the chaos surrounding our new government, and how we are mobilizing to resist the death culture. It's only been two weeks since Trump has been installed as president, and the array of actions, executive orders, and tweets has been overwhelming. January 28th was the eighth day of Donald Trump's presidency. Less than 24 hours after he had signed an executive order instituting a travel ban on people traveling to the U.S. from seven majority Muslim countries, airports became a place of protest. That Saturday night, protesters showed up at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. They also clogged parts of JFK, as well as terminals in Dallas, Boston, Miami, Washington, Birmingham, D.C., Phoenix, Seattle, Albuquerque, Denver, Missoula, Montana, and Portland, Maine. The outpouring of support was unprecedented. A call went out at 3 p.m. for citizens to gather at Terminal 5 at O'Hare. By 6 p.m., thousands of activists swarmed the terminal and eventually shut down incoming access to the facility. Dozens of attorneys assembled to offer legal aid to those that managed to exit the terminal. Even before the federal judge in New York ruled to block the U.S. from sending people out of the country under Trump's order, a few of those being held at O'Hare were released after hours of questioning. Several lawmakers slammed the ban in statements that night, including Senators Tammy Duckworth and Dick Durbin. No one was arrested at the protest. We spoke with Jerry Boyle, a member of the National Guild of Lawyers and a man who donates his time to help protect protesters from the man. This excerpt is from Radio Free Bridgeport, which airs every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Welcome back to Radio Free Bridgeport. We were just talking about the executive orders over the weekend, talking with Jerry Boyle, who was observing the... uh, action that happened over on Saturday. Uh-huh. Jamie, I know you were uh, broadcasting some of the stuff. Indeed, we were. We got some uh, sound footage thanks to our evil station manager, Logan Bay, from uh, Ed <laughs> Marzuski. Uh, we've been playing it all the time, actually, and, and that's actually been one of the big hallmarks. Uh, we, we do have some footage from it because it, it really viscerally kind of brought it home, hearing these people uh, chanting over and over again. You know, we want people out of the country. We want people to stay. And we were talking earlier, as you can hear in our background right now for our bed music, um, People showing up and chanting, they want people to come in the country. Let them in. Let them in. So, a very unusual scene, I think. And we were talking about this before he came on the show. And I think one of the things we want to talk about, though, is these protests are going to be ongoing. They have been. What resources are there out there for people um, who are going to participate in these protests? And where do you think, after that, where these protests are going to go? Uh, There are a number of resources available out there. Uh, Obviously, the National Lawyers Guild, and at least in Chicago, you can go into our website and you'll get instructions on how to request legal observers. Um, Another good resource for protesters that's frequently overlooked is medics. Uh, Chicago Action Medical um, is is a very good group that's in town. They also have a website and a Facebook page. And inviting the medics is always a good idea. Uh, People have this notion that the street medics are all about pepper spray and batons, and certainly they know that stuff. But uh, most of the medical issues you see at a protest have nothing to do with the police and everything to do with exposure. And uh, the medics are very, very good at dealing with those issues. And You're talking uh, about exposure to heat and cold. Heat, okay. cold, people trip and fall, people uh, have hypoglycemic attacks, hyper, um, heat stroke, uh, frostbite. Um, 
all different kinds of mishaps that just come from being outside in the elements for extended periods of time. And um, the, the medics are very well trained in that, and Chicago is fortunate to have a, a very professional group of people to, to assist. I'd also recommend, uh, because the, the mainstream media will show up, but it's always a good idea to uh, invite alternative media, uh, because alternative media will give you the kind of coverage you deserve. And even if the mainstream media spins it as, say, a riot, um, an outfit like Chicagoist or Lumpen, um, or the reader, or the reader, Chicago um, reporter, Chicago in reporter. These times. In these times, you get those people to your event, and you're, you're you're much more likely to get the kind of coverage you deserve. Well, one of the interesting things I've noticed now, Jerry, is that the kind of reaction the public has had, the people in general have had to the inauguration, the actual um, um, the 45th presidency, is is really rejuvenated and activated so many people. I haven't seen this much, so many people come out in the streets since the turn of the century uh, during the uh, WTO World Trade protests of, of that era. And I remember that there was a massive movement uh, um, leading up to the end of the century, uh, people trying to challenge the corporate globalization of the world, talking about environmental issues, climate change. It was um, the first time that the so-called left was able to put aside their kind of single issues and we're able to band together uh, as a larger organization to create these kind of actions and meetings and protests and marches. And what's happening now is amazing because it's so spontaneous. We don't even know who the makeup of, of these organizations or groups or people are. We have no clue who these people are or where, what their politics are, if they're from organizations, if they're independent people, if they're, well, obviously you could see some of the pink hats. You know that they're women, part of the, the Women's March or just activists in general. But it's blowing my mind. We, we have a whole lot of new people on the streets, and that's a good thing. Um, numbers count, and I, again, I can't help but look at this from the perspective of a, a legal observer. How are the police going to respond? Police respond to numbers. Police respond to crowd composition. Uh, probably the best example of that is the night after the Trump protest, or after the Trump election, yeah. and, and the protests that happened that night. It's, um, you know, when I arrived, um, um, you know, I look at the crowd. I look at the crowd, I want to know who and what is there, and what the numbers look like, and what they're going to act like, because I know the police are interested in the same thing. And they're going to gauge re their response on that, based on that. And if, if, if it serves my client's interests, when the police ask me, what are we dealing with here, I'll tell them. So to be able to tell a deputy chief, look, you got a bunch of newbies here, and they're really nice people. And yeah, somebody called this march, but it's going to be totally out of control. It's <laughs> going to be wildcat marches like NATO, except... There's a lot of really nice people here, and all the bystanders support them, so you can't just hit them. And do they yeah. they listen to that? I they think listen. They, do. they listen yeah. to that, yeah. and they realize that. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody supports this, and and everybody did. I mean, I've marched down Lakeshore Drive a number of times with a number of groups. This was the first time where all the people gridlocked in traffic instead of being angry. 
they were honking their horns and pumping their fists and getting out of their cars and chanting our chants. And I mean, the support for the, the protests was universal. To you, the elite, the government, the Bilderberg. A poem by Eva Pilch, author of Daydreams and Through My Eyes. So-called leaders that follow into darkness, so selfishly constructing a mess, suppressing our dreams to fulfill your schemes. Conservative, Republican, liberal, Democrat, human. Left or right wing, you are still the same bird, the most arrogant one I've ever heard. You do not deserve us to obey to your power-poisoned way. Greed only stops at destruction. Be heroes instead of corruption. You use us, distract us, deceive us, but you can never leave us soulless. You have most of the money, let us remind. We have most of mankind, and you are blind. You can sit and despise, but it is love that will rise. Indeed, united we stand and divided we fall. That includes you, that includes us all. What is right or wrong you can learn by a simple table turn. After all, you trust a system that is doing this to people. Check what species is your vessel. And I will not be afraid to speak. Evil became evil by being weak. Against good, it will always lose the battle. You are not our gods, and we are not your cattle. The Trump Diaries, Day 7, January 27th. Trump closed the nation's borders to refugees from around the world, ordering that families fleeing the slaughter in Syria be indefinitely blocked from entering the United States and temporarily suspending emigration from several predominantly Muslim countries. In an executive order he said was part of an extreme vetting plan to keep out what he called radical Islamic terrorists, Trump also established a religious test for refugees from Muslim nations. Trump ordered that Christians and others from minority religions be granted priority over Muslims. Earlier in the day, Trump alleged without proof that under previous administrations, quote, if you were a Muslim, you could come in, but if you're a Christian, it was almost impossible. Trump and President Enrique Peña Nieto of Mexico also spoke by phone for about an hour on the day. Tensions between the two nations rose over Trump's insistence on building a border wall and his caricatures of Mexican immigrants. Trump did not back down during the conversation, saying, quote, the border is soft and weak, drugs are pouring in, and I'm not going to let that happen. Later in the day, Vice President Mike Pence then became the highest-ranking American official to address an anti-abortion march. Speaking before thousands, Pence said, quote, we will not rest until we restore a culture of life in America. Pence also said the anti-abortion movement must embrace the moment. Trump tweeted his full support for the march. And the new American ambassador to the United Nations said that the USA would be, quote, taking names of those nations that did not support their issues. Nikki Haley issued the unprecedented warning Friday saying, quote, you are going to see a change in the way we do business. Our goal is to show value at the UN, and the way we'll show value is to show our strength, show our voice, have the backs of our allies, 
and make sure our allies have our back as well. Trump is said to be planning to lift the sanctions imposed by Obama on Russia for their role in hacking the American election. Top advisor Kellyanne Conway told Fox News today, if another nation has considerable resources who wishes to join together with the United States of America to try to defeat and eradicate radical Islamic terrorism, we're listening. Day 8, January 28th. To the shock of many, protests spontaneously erupt across America, particularly at the airports as the reality of the Muslim ban hits home. JFK saw a crowd swell into the thousands. O'Hare saw Terminal 5 shut down by a loud crowd chanting, let them in. 134 people across the USA are detained by Customs and Border Security, forcing a flurry of late-night legal action by legal aid in the ACLU. At 9 o'clock, a judge in Brooklyn halts Trump's executive order on limited grounds, ordering detainees with valid visas and green cards to be let in. Trump, meanwhile, spends the day speaking to world leaders, including Putin, Angela Merkel, and Japanese PM Shinzo Abe. Merkel is reported to have explained the Geneva Conventions to Trump, noting that the USA is required to accept refugees. By nightfall, Trump's executive order was coming under heavy fire even from members of his own party. Day 9, January 29th. Trump's chief of staff, Rins Priebus, walks back one of the most controversial aspects of the Muslim ban, allowing that green card holders will be admitted. As the Trump administration tries to mount a defense of the program, now said to have been crafted in secret by top aide Steve Bannon, John McCain and Lindsey Graham release a joint statement calling for the order to be scrapped. Trump replied on Twitter, of course, with an insult to the two men, claiming that they were always looking to start World War III. Trump also releases a written statement saying the, quote, lying media is responsible for calling it a Muslim ban, attempting to defend this ban as, quote, against terror. Many began to take note of the fact that several countries that do in fact export terror, such as Saudi Arabia, are somehow exempt from Trump's new ban. A common theme between those is that Trump had done business in many of the exempt countries. But in the background, another executive order was gaining attention. In an unprecedented move, Trump controversially reorganizes the National Security Council to elevate the president's chief strategist, Stephen Bannon, and downgrade the director of national intelligence and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The mismanagement of the president's top intelligence and military advisors shocks both Democrats and Republican. The NSC usually does not include participants from the political side of the White House, and for good reason. People behind the scenes put the finger on Michael Flynn, who apparently is currently falling flat as National Security Advisor. And one American commando is killed and three others wounded in a fierce firefight early Sunday with Qaeda militants in central Yemen. This is the first counterterrorism operation authorized by Trump since he takes office. 14 Qaeda fighters were killed during a nearly hour-long battle. The American commando was the first to die in combat in Yemen. The raid would come under scrutiny later in the week. Day 10, January 30th. Fallout from the Muslim ban continues to dominate the news cycle. Trump uses the word ban for the first time in a tweet, undercutting his claim that the order has been misinterpreted. Protests reverberate around the globe. Protests continue to swell in the USA, and President Obama also speaks up, cheering the protests and decrying any notion of a religious ban. A new front opens up as well in a scathing report from the State Department, signed by over 100 career civil servants. They say the ban may lead to an increase in global terrorism. The White House pushes back strongly against what is known as a dissent cable. Press Secretary Sean Spicer says the signers should, quote, get with the program or quit. And the Capitol is stunned late in the day when Acting Attorney General Sally Yates circulates a memo to the Justice Department instructing them not to defend the executive order. Yates says in her memo that she could not vouch for its legal validity. An incandescent Trump administration fires her hours later, accusing her of betrayal and adding she was, quote, weak on borders and weak on immigration. Yates, of course, is not responsible for anything on immigration, only the law. Day 11, January 31st. The firing of Yates galvanizes Democrats who immediately compare it to the infamous Nixon-era Saturday Night Massacre. 
Democrats seized the controversy to stall the nomination of Jeff Sessions as Attorney General. And Democrats in the Senate Finance Committee delayed the confirmations of Stephen Munchen and Tom Price by refusing to attend scheduled votes. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon says that news reports suggested Mr. Munchen and Mr. Price had given false statements in their nomination hearings. In a tawdry primetime TV special, Trump names Neil Gorsuch as his pick to the Supreme Court. Gorsuch, a solid but mainstream conservative, is seen as a less divisive pick than some others. In other years, Gorsuch, in fact, would likely sail through. He was confirmed without opposition to his current seat on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals. The Democrats vow to make this pick a referendum on the president and the process. Gorsuch is also known for frequently siding with business over labor. He also handed down that controversial Hobby Lobby decision. Day 12, February 1st. Remember that dissent cable circulating through the State Department? It now has an unprecedented 1,000 signatures. And Trump and Harley-Davidson cancel a trip to Milwaukee for a factory visit due to fears over massive protests. The move is likely to have repercussions and embolden the growing number of people in America protesting the Trump regime. The Trump administration also condemns Iran for a recent missile test, saying it was putting Tehran on notice and threatening unspecified reprisals. The belligerent reaction from national security aide Michael Flynn stopped short of accusing Iran of violating a United Nations Security Council resolution. And Trump encourages Mitch McConnell to invoke the so-called nuclear option and abandon the 60-vote threshold for Supreme Court nominees. McConnell is leery of changing the rules, fearful of what Democrats would do if they regained congressional control. And diplomatic relations between the U.S. and its longtime ally Australia were fraying today after Trump and Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull had an angry phone call. The Washington Post reports that Turnbull pressed Mr. Trump to honor an Obama-era agreement to accept 1,250 refugees from an Australian detention center. Trump called it a dumb deal as the call turned testy. Australia indicates the USA will honor the deal. Trump has no comment after the call. And two Republican senators say they will vote against Betsy DeVos, the controversial nominee to head up the Education Department. The moves from Lisa Murkowski and Susan Collins signals that Ms. DeVos could fail to garner the votes necessary to be confirmed. Rex Tillerson, however, is confirmed as Secretary of State along party lines. It is one of the narrowest confirmation votes ever for the position. Three other cabinet nominees do advance to the Senate using arcane procedures over Democratic stalling. Tom Price, Steve Mnuchin, and Jeff Sessions will be voted on this week. Finally, Sean Spicer talked about his beef with Dippin' Dots. It's a joke, quote, he said. How long can they be the ice cream of the future? You can't actually be the future forever. Polling puts Trump's approval record at 36%, the lowest for any president in the modern era in a first year. Gallup also puts Trump's disapproval rating at 51%, an all-time record. The Beer Temple's Insider's Roundtable airs every Thursday night at 8 p.m. Even a beer show talks about politics this week, when Chris Quinn talked to Melanie Dominguez, owner of The Green Lady, about her choice to not carry Miller Coors products and the resulting local and national attention it garnered. Welcome back to the Beer Temple Insiders Roundtable. I am your host, Chris Quinn. What I wanted to talk about was really something I've been thinking about and something that I struggle with um, personally as, as a business owner and also just as a, as a person um, and Brian Roth, who's been on the show several times, again, had a, just a great article called Do You Want Politics in Your Beer? And it was basically about advocacy from, you know, the beer world. So I figured you guys were probably a, a pretty good crew to to have on. So I wanted to talk about your, your thoughts about it, just kind of have an open discussion, um, your opinions about kind of being an advocate and also being a, a, a business owner and just kind of throw it out there. I could talk for a while, but 
I'm guessing some of you people have have opinions. So, uh, Melanie, do you want to go first? Me to I mean, I think it's kind of the elephant in the room, right? <laughs> do you want me to give some backstory? Do you want to give you the can backstory? You give the backstory if you'd like to. Okay. Uh, and please, um, you know it much better than I. So just, you know, if I get anything wrong or, or leave stuff out, just, just jump right in there. So essentially, you started uh, not carrying Miller Coors products at your bar, the Green Lady, because of one of the owners of Miller Coors, Pete Coors, political affiliations. And he's been pretty famously very conservative. I think he ran for Senate maybe 10 years or or less ago. I seem to remember. And it got picked up by Josh Noel, another guest who's been on the show. And then it got picked up nationally. It did. The fact that you... Um, so I posted on my Facebook, my page for the Green Lady, that we would no longer be carrying those products. Yeah. And that the stock that we still had, we would be selling for $6 a bottle, and all of the profits would be going to Planned Parenthood in Mike Pence's name. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel as a publican, as a member of this society, as a person, as a mother, and three of us have daughters in this room that I really needed to think about how it is that I can... Four of us. Oh, four of us. Yeah. Four of us have have daughters that now, today, have less rights than I had when I graduated high school in 1989. And that's something to really think about and, and where that's going in the future. So when I learned of this fundraiser that they had... Um, I just decided that I'm not going to spend my business dollars there and that Planned Parenthood is a necessary thing and that women in particular are under attack in a lot of ways and it's only going to get worse. So what can I do? This is how I'm going to do it. And then when it got picked up, it became this monster. I was thrust into an arena that I didn't expect to be into. Did you want to be or did you not care? Were you happy to be there? You know, I, I think that everything that um, the person that is now running this country stands for is, is against what I stand for. And I am a very vocal person. And I, you know, I know what sexual assault is. I know what misogyny is. I deal with it on a daily basis. So for me... Um, it wasn't something where I was like, oh, I'm going to become political and I'm going to have Fox News camped out in front of my bar for four hours trying to get a re- an investigative reporter to do an interview with me. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't. Did that happen? Oh, yeah. I, I wasn't expecting death threats. I wasn't expecting Yelp reviews. I wasn't expecting, you know, my Facebook reviews to go from 4.6 to less than three in two hours after the Tribune ran the article. Guys drinking beer I talked to Carl as well yeah, about it. Carl Clockers, and yeah. you know, when when it all happened, my my stance was and still is a positive thing. What can I do in a positive light? I wasn't negative towards anybody. I wasn't derogatory. I wasn't saying if you voted for this person or if you didn't vote for this person, I feel this way about you. I said, let's start a dialogue because I think globally that's what's missing. We can't respectfully sit with somebody and say I feel this way. How do you feel about it? And I think that that was my only intention for my customers to know 
why when they come in on a Thursday night trivia night when that was our special for $3 a bottle, they would be charged $6 a bottle and what I was planning to do with that. And if you walk into my bar, the first thing you see, hate has no home here sign. You see the Women's March, which I took my daughter to on Saturday. And, you know, there's never been any question as to how I feel about being a woman in this industry or a woman in this world. I don't believe that anybody should talk down to anybody. It doesn't matter what your gender is. And I'm very gender neutral with my daughter. I don't say he or she. I say that person. Or, you know, I, it's, it, that's just the way that I live my life. And I wasn't saying if you don't agree with what I'm saying, you, I'm, you're not welcome. Mm-hmm. As long as you're respectful, you're welcome. And, and that's just what it was all about. And then when, you know, the phone call started and the emails started and the, you know, Google reviews and Yelp reviews and Yelp in on their own accord had a cleanup effort on my page. Like they, they recognized that this is what's going on. And, you know, for three and a half weeks, I couldn't even answer my phone because I had to leave the messages on my machine because I had to make reports because there's a neo-Nazi group after me on Twitter, you know, all of these things. And NBC and ABC, CBS wants to do interviews. You know, I had to literally several times tell this man from Fox News to get out from in front of my bar. And he was like, well, I guess I'm going to have to respect that. And, you know, on the flip side of all of that, there was also a lot of positive things that came from it as well you know and there were letters written in positive lights and for every negative Yelp review there was a positive Yelp review and you know back and forth back and forth and so we have since had several other fundraisers that have done really well and we're having a Susan B. Anthony birthday February 15th party that's also going to support Planned Parenthood and you know um, it's it's just frightening that there's so such hate i mean some of the things that people said to me about me like it just it it's it baffles my mind that these people have such hatred for somebody that they don't know voices their opinion i mean and then today as if it were something that helped me get a little fired up for our topic tonight i got a letter in the mail she literally has an envelope i have an envelope yeah Addressed to the green lady, care of Melanie Dominguez, and they actually spelt my name correctly, so I thought maybe it was something positive. Oh, cool. <clears throat> I recently read about your bar's decision to drop Miller Coors products from its menu in response to Pete Coors' support of President, bold, Donald Trump. Your quote, quote, this is how I can stand up and be counted and model my behavior for my five-year-old girl. I've been struggling over the last few weeks with what to say to her when she asks how so many people can vote for someone so mean, end quote. I find that to be quite ironic coming from a person that owns a bar. While not the worst profession in the world, do you really feel like you're making a positive contribution to society, serving overpriced drinks to people? And let me guess, you're a single mother that had your five-year-old daughter out of wedlock. Is the father a patron of your bar that you went home with one night? Or do you even know who the father is? I bet you don't even know the number of guys from your bar that you've gone home with over the years. Only you know the answer, and deep down, you're ashamed of yourself And when you think about that. Have you struggled over the last few weeks with what to say to her about that? A real role model you are, ho, exclamation point. Oh my God. Regards, 
Bill Thompson, Lombard, Illinois. P.S. I did not vote for Trump. And then he decided that, that his printed letter to me from his computer wasn't enough, and he had to handwrite, what am I supposed to tell my daughter about you? Interesting. Wow. When I think about this person sitting in his home, sitting in his life for almost two months, I've, I've affected him. Right. So my, my stance has affected him. So maybe he's going to think about his daughter, and he's going to think about something else. But, you know, for him to say these things, I, that's not even the worst of what I'm, this just happened I'm today. Sure. So it's, it's just it's, it's raw. But I have to tell you, that all pales in comparison to being held down by five friends on a dirty mattress in a garage and sexually assaulted. And I got through that. And I had to see them every day at school after that. So I'm going to get through this, and I'm not going to be silenced, and I'm going to keep advocating for women's rights, for gay rights, for anybody that's voice is, a, in the last five days, being squashed. And I'm not going to be bullied by these people. They're not going to intimidate me. What they think that they're going to do on their emails and their voicemails and their letters that he's sending to my bar with a Merry Christmas stamp on it, thank you very much. <laughs> Like, they, they have no idea who I am. One man said that I should, with a name like that, be on the next bus back to Mexico. One of the comments was, I can't believe that the owner of this bar is letting this stupid libtard woman talk for him. Him. Wow. Right. So you didn't read the article. And in not reading the article, you missed the point. And by missing the point, you're proving my point. So, you know, who's going to stand up and... and Beer is politics. The, the little breweries that started, started out of politics. And when we're talking about, are we going to just, you know, stand be? I don't regret anything that I said. That's what I was going to say. I stand you, behind it all 100%. Yeah. There were a couple days right at the very beginning that I had no idea what this really was. I had no idea like, there was gonna so much. Is this going to put me out of business? And... No, it wasn't even about my business. Okay. It was about the fact that... These people didn't even block their caller ID. So I know where they live. I They're among us. I thought maybe we were in this liberal, not bubble. liberal, bubble. We were in this bubble of acceptance because we live in Chicago. We're not. We are not. And, and they're among us. And I think that we have to be aware and we have to be vigilant and we have to be, you know, now I've turned into the internet troll, because I have to find out about these people. I have to find out, I have to know who I'm dealing with. So this guy on his Facebook page, I was reading all of his lovely, interesting things and him saying he didn't vote for Trump. Uh, you didn't vote for Hillary either. Right. You know, so who did you vote for? You didn't even vote. So what do you, where's your voice? You know what I mean? Or he's so, a liar. Right, exactly. And it doesn't matter who you voted for. You're full of hate. <laughs> Welcome back to the Lumpen Week in Review. Our next excerpt is from Spontaneous Vegetation, which airs the first Wednesday of every month at noon. Host Nancy Clem is the Director of Social Ecologies, working internationally on waste stream revisioning and reallocation, soil contamination and fertility, and agroecological practices. This week, Nancy spoke with artist MPA about the physical and philosophical implications of settling on Mars. Thank you for tuning in to Spontaneous Vegetation. I'm your host, Nancy Clem. Spontaneous Vegetation is a monthly show of long format interviews with folks who find the cracks, 
break up the compaction, remediate the contamination, and leave the soil, metaphorically or literally, better for us all. In this month's show, I will be speaking with MPA, who is an internationally recognized performance artist and concerned magician of the energetic. She is right now in New York City preparing for Orbit, a 10-day durational performance, a part of her larger exhibition, Red in View, at the Whitney. Um, and this uh, Red in View embodies her long-raging inquiry into the practical limitations of the Earth and the impending colonization of Mars, the Red Planet. In one of his later interviews in life, Bradbury admitted that he thought it was going to be necessary to move humans to Mars mm -hmm. because we had trashed this planet. Um, do you believe that humans, both by nature and through interaction, are destructive and will distinguish, extinguish ourselves? And could that be part of the reason why people want to start again? You know, it's a great question, Nancy, and it's a question that... Um, well, one of the pieces that corresponds with this, that came out of this research was to create this phone line called the interview. And the interview folks that encounter it, it's right now usually been in art museums or, or um, that people can pick up this phone line and, and talk anonymously with a, with a, and engage in a conversation about um, if they've ever imagined going to Mars and, um, it quickly, the conversation is quickly guided to the very question you asked, which is either the person um, randomly picking up the phone brings up this topic, oh, we're destroying this planet, so we're going to have to go to Mars, or the interviewer, um, one of the performers on the other, uh, receiving the call, will um, will ask this question about human condition. You know, is this specifically, like, is this human behavior that has colonized to the extent of violently treating each other's bodies like private property and and the resources of this planet like private property is that something biologically determined is that conditioned is that destiny is a question that gets asked and it's fascinating for me um, having participated in the interview line as one of the the folks receiving the calls to hear so many humans think that this is natural, that equating that equating warlike behavior and colonizing behavior as a, as a as a nature as part of nature, um, I myself do not think that war is natural. I think it's a construction. I think it's something that humans invented, and that they've been able to enforce through mechanisms of dominance i don't but but so are humans going to mars because this planet is dying i think some humans might uh, with that thought um is this human is this planet dying is also a really um it's an existential question climate change is real yes um does the planet have ways of treating itself of giving itself medicine. I want to believe that. And some days I feel I know that. Mm -hmm. um, but I but I know that I want to believe that. Wow. So let's back up a little bit. I want to describe how the interview is live. It's set up. It's one of the components in the current show. And when I've seen pictures of it, it's um, red reclining chair. 
um, kind of poised to look at a screen of an image of a red planet. And there's a table with a phone um, next to it that can just be picked up um, and, and talked into um, during the hours of the, of the museum or wherever it's set up. Um, this, what's interesting about this, not only is it live and that someone will pick up the phone on the other side, is that it runs for three and a half months so it's not a limited engagement. It really requires you, and I'm assuming your other collaborators on in yes. orbit, to be present um, for you know for when en- anybody decides to pick up the phone um, at the exhibition for those three and a half months. Um, yeah. So I think that you know that really. I think the position you put yourself in to be intimately connected um, to whoever picks up is is kind of a kind of a sustainable way of harvesting the collective consciousness um, with these calls. And I just wanted to know if you could talk a little bit more about some of the conversations you've had that have been um, maybe a little bit more unsettling to you or something a little bit more provocative? Mm. Um, When the piece was up in Houston, um, there was quite a, there was a quite a lot of talk about religion that would come across the, the phone line. So there wasn't just the maybe sensations of humans discussing their experiences here on planet earth or their understanding of a human condition, but also an ingredient of the authoring um, by a God to these conditions. So that was quite striking to me because it wasn't an art museum, but it might just say something about um, folks that were coming to that, that museum. Um, There was a lot of, there was a lot of Christianity that was expressed. Um, in the the interview line is active right now in New York City, and it's been active during a time since um, the election. And so that line is fertile, I feel like, with the expressions that humans are experiencing right now in a kind of urgency to grasp or reclaim a control on the direction of the future of this planet and of and of humans on this planet. Um, so the, the conversations right now feel potent with, um, both despair and then glimmers, um, of this kind of ambitious hope, um, a people's movement, I guess that would take, you know, when, when folks are describing people's movements across the line, but there has been despair that comes inherently, I think in, in the question, in, in the question of why humans want to go to Mars, there's a lot of also I can say expressions that range from even believing if this is impossible or if this is some wealthy and wealth wealthy class fantasy. Mm-hmm. That that why and the, there's the realities of actually getting to humans Mars will be possibly one of the most expensive investments 
um, that humans have uh, have have known to occur on this planet. We're talking probably up to three hundred to four hundred billion dollars just for one one vessel to get there. Um, and so that that in that context, I think there's a lot of expressions of this is imaginary. And and sometimes on the interview line, facts like the things I said before about SpaceX and Mars One's goal for 2030 um, bring that into bring it that make that real for for people. But it can um, I've observed that it still seems like very far fetched. Um, many people express a desire to go to Mars, mm-hmm. um, and that is fed. I think not because. Um, not only because they think that conditions on Earth are going to be um, in, in, inhospitable soon to humans, but because of an adventuring spirit and to do what they have not been able to see. Um, this frontiering um, articulation uh, is something that the, the interviewers tend test the attempt to unpack you know what is it um what's the fine line between exploration and uh colonizing you know what's the fine line between uh claiming um marking um and visiting this week saw a new show added to lumpen radio hitting left with the klonsky brothers on this episode mike and fred talk with troy lavrivier president of the Chicago Principals Association, about education, politics, and social justice. Hitting Left airs every Friday at 11 a.m. Went back into teaching and just really developed my craft as a teacher. And it's interesting, and there's a trajectory here, so if you'll, if you'll entertain me for just another minute here. You become a teacher. You get good. And you see that your kids come into your classroom and they're engaged and they're behaving properly. Uh, and they go out, and you you see them doing stuff outside of your classroom that's not reflective of how they behave inside. And you start thinking, you know, if only I had I could had some position where I could influence the school in a in a broader way than I do right here in my classroom. And that's sort of what the the conversation I had with myself. So I was promoted to dean of students, right, and assistant principal. And you become an assistant principal, and you have this bigger impact but you still have to follow someone else's rules. And you think that, you know, if I was principal, then I could really, you know, construct an educational and cultural program that benefits students. I, I see what the mistakes this one is. I love this one, but I see some mistakes here. So you become a principal, right? And I became a principal and created a leadership team in a school and, and recruited a staff at blame that, like you know, it rose from number four to number one over the few years that I was there. But then, while you're doing it, you realize that there are these policies coming from on high, from city hall, from city council, from the board of education, that are impacting or negatively impacting your ability to do your job. And so you start thinking, "Oh Lord, <laughs> right? Like, like, like now you have to find a way to organize people to influence them." And their policy. So it's just like at one stage after another, your consciousness of the outside influences on your ability, the outside negative influences on your ability to help students do one simple thing, which is to meet their human potential, 
you become aware of the influences, the negative influences on that, and you begin to take steps to want to to change that influence. Am I making sense here? Well, you know, I, as I'm listening to your story, see, because I was a guy who got a teaching job uh, right. early on and and um, and went through the master's program at, at the University of Illinois at Chicago, mm-hmm. and it was in the doctoral program at the. And people would say, "Well, get your." Get out of the classroom. Get your get your doctor. Get become an administrator. Become a principal. Maybe teach at the university. Mm-hmm. And and, um, and I kept asking the question: Why can't teachers have an effect on the system? Why can't teachers, as teachers, have an effect on this? Why do we have to leave the classroom in order to have an effect? Not just on our on the students that walk in every day, but on on the broader policy, system yeah. and on policy. So, what are you finding, Troy, when you're out when you're out talking to uh, principals and educators? Uh, what, how's their consciousness? Has it changed uh, recently uh, with, with, the, with Trump and with what's going on in the, uh, in the schools? So I was actually just at a school yesterday morning, uh, Swift, where they had an assembly outdoors uh, of parents, because Swift has refugees and immigrant families there. And the principal opened up uh, the school for this uh, morning ritual where they had politicians, they had community folks come out, they had parents come out to reaffirm, to affirm and reaffirm their commitment to those families. Um, and when the uh, gathering was over, there was a program inside of the school where the Center for Immigrant and Refugee Rights uh, did a workshop for Im- and it was a scary thing to listen to, a workshop for immigrant and refugee families to help them protect themselves for what might be coming. And so to listen to them say, make sure you have a copy of all of your documents in place somewhere, and then make sure you have another copy of those documents with someone Mm. you love and trust, Mm. right? To prepare for this possible onslaught that may come their way. And so, but none of that would have been made possible if the principal hadn't opened up her school to help make that happen. Uh, and so I think you have that kind of sentiment all over the, when you the were, city. When you were speaking out uh, as principal of Blaine, and, and you were even writing, you wrote, a, I remember you wrote a, a great piece in the Tribune uh, talking about uh, what's happening uh, with schools and how, uh, how the business uh, priorities of the mayor are kind of taking over educational interests, right? Right. Uh, when you were speaking out, a lot, of, a lot of other principals got nervous, didn't they? Um, principals have always yeah. been nervous. I don't think it was when I was speaking out. Part of why I spoke out in the first place, one thing people, if you read that first op-ed I wrote, I talked about how principals were scared behind the scenes. All of us were saying the same things, but no one was speaking out. And so part of why I was speaking out was to respond to a fear that was already there long before I started to speak out. Um, And so I think you know, my speaking out, you know, encouraged some people. I don't know if it emboldened anyone, but I know I got a lot of comments from principals thanking me. It hasn't reached the point where anybody wants to follow my examples, but I think the that speaking out was appreciated. Another thing I want to talk about, you mentioned that article questioning the business priorities of the mayor. That was in the title. The, when you write an op-ed for the trip, you, you get you get to write it, but you don't get to give it a title. They titled it, and the title they gave it was something like "Why Emmanuel Puts Business Ahead of Children." That's not that wasn't the. If you read it, that wasn't the subject. 
I don't think he puts business ahead of children. I think he puts parasitic financial interests ahead of children because there are legitimate businesses who are also suffering right here in Chicago. You know, schools can't survive without a business community. Right? There has to be some economic activity from which tax revenue is generated to support schools. So you need a thriving business community. He's not supporting the business communities. He's supporting a small set of very wealthy parasites within that community. I don't even call them businessmen. Calling them businessmen is like calling Frank and Jesse James bankers. <laughs> yes, indeed. And when we talk, well, when we talk about, the, about the business interest, though, it's not simply... Contracts, part of part of uh, Ronner, Ron, well, Ronner, but Rom's uh, plans is is to, interesting. Slip there, Fred. Uh, easy to do, but is to uh, hand over the school systems to the parasitic uh, uh, business community that you described. That to turn turn public uh, education into uh, into uh, a private domain. I remember. When I first came uh, to Chicago in 1973, there was a neighborhood public school in every neighborhood. And now you have uh, areas of the west side of Humboldt Park, four square miles of Humboldt Park that doesn't have a single neighborhood public elementary school. Uh, uh, and so, I mean, that's, a as that's the aspect of the business community that by its nature is parasitic. Absol so absolutely. Yeah. When the public education and public tax dollars in general are sort of the last bastion of immense profit potential for corporations. We put we pay trillions of dollars every year and put it into education. Uh, but we use those we before we use that money to pay primarily for staffing, for teachers, for principals, for social workers, for counselors. And they saw they see that as a, a bastion of profit, but in order to get that money they have to get us to stop spending it on teachers, stop spending it on their pensions, stop spending it on their salaries. And so you have to find ways to attack their pensions, lower their salaries, and so that you can then divert it toward these privatized um, schemes like charters, like vouchers, like whatever. And so it is a not just a nationwide, but a worldwide movement by the parasitic financial community. And we're seeing... Uh, a, a, a breakneck speed now, uh, an erosion of public space, not just public schools, but public space, public decision-making that goes with that. And uh, the, the uh, I call it a coup that's taken place now at the national level, uh, which smells a lot like, uh, like fascism or I call it neo-fascism. It's not maybe not the traditional German kind of fascism, but it's really a, a kind of a corporatist uh, 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 move to destroy public anything public, right? Um, it, it's funny because they they frame it in this sort of and excuse my voice. I was out there at O'Hare too, <laughs> trying to rile up the protesters. Uh, we're going to get uh, to that in a minute. Yeah. I have lost my voice, um, but you know they they frame it with this very anti-government kind of yes. um, uh, talking points. But what they're doing is replacing public government with private government because things are going the schools are going to have to be governed the spaces are going to have to be governed and right now they're governed by people who we at least who at least have some accountability to us through public entities like a city council like a school board uh, like the people that we elect to govern these spaces 
when you privatize them, they're going to be governed. There will be a government, but it will be a government that is not accountable to us. It will be a government of a, a, a corporate board or CEO. Like they will have authority and we won't have any kind of mechanism through which to exercise any kind of control over spaces that were once ours. And the spaces that should be ours, those part of those that are part of our private lives, these same people want to, that that want to take government that 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 uh, want to uh, privatize and and corporatize uh, what was the public's also want to get into our bedrooms and into our homes and to and to make uh, make uh, make uh, public what really should be private. And they also want to control the information flow, and so uh, we're 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 hearing uh, all kind of unbelievable uh, lies being uh, spread. <laughs> Buenas noches, Chicago. Good evening, Chicago. Buenas noches, aficionados y guerreros del juego de pelota. Good evening, fans and warriors of the ball game. This is El Cardenal 105 and a half. Este es el programa El Cardenal 105 punto y medio My fourth story of the night Ricardo Allen and Dion Jones of the Atlanta Falcons The only two warriors who can stop Tom Brady in Super Bowl 51 We are five days away from witnessing the battle for the Vince Lombardi Trophy the Falcons made their way to the Super Bowl 51 by punishing quarterbacks before facing the Packers in the divisional playoff. On the other hand, Tom Brady made history in the AFC Championship game, completing 32 of 42 for 384 yards and three touchdowns. This is the seventh time that Tom Brady and Bill Belichick lead the Patriots to the Super Bowl. Atlanta's ability to emerge as black demon souls from the underworld, del inframundo espesado, is heavy. The front seven are hungry and they've been preaching violence on the gridiron despite the defense. Finished number 27 in regular season, allowing 406 points. The secondary is playing intense. Dion Jones, who made 108 tackles. Keanu Neal, 106 tackles. And Ricardo Allen, with 90 tackles. Will try to dominate and conquer the world. The Falcons could win this game if they can create turnovers. In postseason, Ricardo Allen intercepted twice and Dion Jones once. The last time I talked to a defense which they sacrificed offensive players were the Saints in Super Bowl 44. Tracy Porter told me back then that he watched tons of Peyton Manning games. So those Falcons, you bet they're watching a lot of video of Tom Brady. Matt Ryan, the Falcons quarterback, has had the best season ever as a solid leader of the Falcon Knights, the Los Caballero Alcón, who have a powerful offensive line that expands and use apart defensive ends. 
Lazier, I got the chance to talk to Cooper, with the tight end who has played impressive. He explained he knew how to block and run his routes. He knew there were teams in the draft process looking for a tight end, and so far, the Falcons have been using him to balance their offense, catching passes when Julio Jones is covered, and opening gaps, blocking Davonta Prima, who ran this season for 1,509 yards. If the Falcons are hungry, they will dissect the Patriots' offense. However, the Patriots had the number one defense in pro football. So, for Super Bowl 51, Cardenal de Aztlán chooses the Patriots over the Falcons. New England 37, Atlanta 27. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is edited and engineered by Logan Bay. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. Lumpen Radio Sting by Dan Jugal. Voiceovers by Ed Marzuski, Jamie Trecker, Logan Bay, and Shanna Van Volt. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Lumpen Radio broadcasts on 105.5 FM in the Chicago area and worldwide via lumpenradio.com. <laughs>